Well, turn with me to Song of Solomon, chapter 4. Song of Solomon 4. We're going to read the entire passage here. We began last week and we'll continue tonight. Song of Solomon 4, the central part of this book. Beginning in verse 1. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins, and not one among them has lost its young. Your lips are like a scarlet thread, and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built in rows of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Depart from the peak of Amana, from the peak of Sinir and Hermon, from the dens of lions, from the mountains of leopards. You have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spice. Your lips drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. A garden locked is my sister, my bride. A spring locked, a fountain sealed. Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates with all choicest fruits Hina with nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, with all choice spices. A garden fountain, a well of living water, and flowing streams from Lebanon. Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind, blow upon my garden, let its spices flow. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. Eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. Well, obviously, Solomon and his bride, we've called Shulamith from chapter 6. We have good reason to do this. She's called the Shulamite, but it is more likely a proper name. Solomon and Shulamith have been united in marriage and we have arrived at their wedding night. Last time we considered the beginning of their first night together, verses 1 through 8, and we saw that Solomon desired his bride visually, he desired her physically, and he desired her emotionally in verse 8. And we derived four principles concerning the oneness and the unity of human marriage. And these aren't just principles of the physical side of marriage, it's principles of marriage, period. 
The first principle was the principle of holiness. We were reminded that these are the very words of God. God who teaches His children about the wonders of marriage. We looked at the principle of uplifting, that the godly couple doesn't tear one another down, they build each other up. We looked at the principle of giving, that both in their private time together and in the marriage overall, Paul's principle applies from Philippians 2, 3, and 4, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And finally, we looked at the principle of safeguarding. To broadly understand that the the intimate life of the marriage is a guardian for oneness. It's a a sentinel. And that neglect can create opportunities for Satan, Satan to erode that oneness. To come against that unity that you share. And now as the honeymoon evening progresses, and we said last time that this is really a compact version, that if you just read it like we just did, it just takes a a couple of minutes, but this is an entire evening together. As this evening progresses and Solomon and Shulamith will unite in love for the very first time, we'll follow exactly the same plan that we did last week. We'll look at the text itself, and then we're going to derive four more principles from this text. And so just looking at the the passage itself from verse 9 of chapter 4 through the end of verse 1 of chapter 5, we could divide our understanding into three parts. And they they kind of sound the same. Verses 9 through 15, we'll look at anticipation. In verse 16, we'll look at invitation. And in chapter 5, verse 1, we see consummation. So anticipation, invitation, and consummation. And just a side note here, all throughout this book, and there's no exception here, the, the intimacy of this couple is presented in gloriously elegant and poetic terms. There's no question as to the details that are being expounded upon here, but there's no sense of crassness or dirtiness or embarrassment at all. These are the words of God. Now, the majority of the rest of chapter 1, beginning in verse 9, deals with, first of all, the subject of anticipation. Solomon is the speaker in these verses, and as a man, we're not surprised at his anticipation. That makes sense to us, but as we'll see, this is not one-sided at all. And so we'll just walk back through these verses. Verse 9, you have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. And just a little note here that we haven't talked about much, and it will become more important even later on in the book. But you notice that Solomon often uses the term sister to speak of his bride. This is important to understand that in the ancient Near East, you could not publicly show affection to another woman unless she was your sister. And so when he says my sister, this is a way of saying somebody that I'm very close to, that I'm affectionate with. And so it's nothing weird that we might think of, but it's a a unique nickname that shows their closeness. What is he describing here? You've captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You've captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. Her presence to him in all of her glory is is majestic to him. As As a woman, he sees her as this wondrous creature. He describes himself as a prisoner to her emotionally. He's been captivated. It's a word that means enchanted, captured, stolen. We, we might even use the word hypnotized. She has total power over him now. 
All it takes to capture him, he says, is one glance from her eyes. It's actually singular in Hebrew. One glance of one eyeball is all it takes. He says that one jewel of her necklace is enough to hypnotize him. There's one word, one very key word that describes what she has done to him emotionally. And the word is... At that very moment, ladies, take notes of this. She could say, take out the trash, clean the house. And he would say, yes, ma'am, I'm off to it. Because he's totally enraptured. He's totally captivated. But I want to be very clear about this. This is not just biological, physical lust welling up in Solomon. The whole book fights against that notion. This isn't just the physiological reaction to the visual stimulus of seeing his bride in all of her womanly glory. No, they've built love, they've built affection and adoration and closeness into their relationship over a period of months, potentially even a couple of years. And this excitement on his part should not be mistaken for mere lust. This is love expressed in the form that God made men to express it in excited captivity to the anticipation of the delights of his wife. The anticipation continues in verse 10. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spice. Now on their wedding night, we'll start at the end of the verse, the fragrance of your oils. On the, on the wedding night, he's so close to her that he can smell her oils, as it were. Some take this as fancy perfume that maybe she's wearing, and that might be the case. But the Hebrew word used here generally is, is most often used for the common oils, such as olive oil, which was used to moisturize the skin. In Shulamith's case, her skin has been deep fried, sunburnt. We remember this from chapter one, from repeatedly working in the fields over many years, forced by her brothers to do so. And so the oils that he smells is probably just the normal skin regimen that she uses. In other words, Solomon loves her as she is, not just the made up version of her. And his new bride smells divine to him with just her normal skin oils. And then in the middle of the verse, he says, her love is better than wine. Now this is familiar to us because this is the same compliment that she gave to him in chapter 1, verse 2. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth for your love is better than wine. And so her love being better than wine, his love being better than wine is likely referring to kissing. They're kissing one another, progressing toward consummating their marriage. Verse 11 confirms this suspicion for us. It means that at this point, there's significant touching, significant interaction happening in their progression as husband and wife. Verse 11, here's our confirmation. Your lips drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. At this point... They're in the heat of passionate interaction together. Solomon describes her mouth and her tongue as having honey and milk. Now, this is a very interesting biblical picture for us. You remember that God described the promised land to Israel in Exodus 3.8 as a land flowing with what? Milk and honey. It seems that Solomon is saying, I've come to the promised land. I have come to that which is long awaited, long anticipated. And whatever Shulamith is now wearing as her wedding night attire, at the end of verse 11, 
The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. Whatever she's wearing is something that she packed in her home in southern Lebanon and now has been unpacked and it still smells of the cedar and the pine that southern Lebanon was known for. And so Solomon's anticipation grows and becomes apparent that the time for consummation is drawing near. Verse 12, he describes her as a garden locked is my sister, my bride, a spring locked, a fountain sealed. We really reach the high point of Song of Solomon here where their wedding night is concerned. And as in the whole book, Solomon uses very tasteful, figurative language that is delightful and yet private as between the one flesh union of husband and wife. This is a brief outline of the marital physical relationship presented, I I think, in more stunningly beautiful terms than anywhere else in the Bible. Beautiful terms. And what do we see in verse 12 in this poetic beauty? We see a declaration of Shulamith's virginity using the metaphor of water. That she is a garden locked, meaning no one has gotten to the water that's in the garden. She is a spring locked. There's no access to the water source. And she is a fountain sealed. This is a picture of total inaccessibility. And I want to be very clear about this. We notice that in Scripture, for those who are true worshipers of the God of the Bible, for those who have repented of sin and desire to follow Christ, virginity isn't something to be mocked at. It's not something to be sneered at. Virginity is a trophy. It's a treasure. It's something worth guarding, worth keeping. It's something to be proud of. But now, in the total openness and plan and will of God, the locks are coming off. And the gates to this garden of her body are are swinging open. And listen to Solomon's description of his total and complete access to her body in verses 13 and 14. Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates with all choicest fruits, henna with nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes with all choice spices, This isn't difficult to picture. You picture a locked gate that nobody has been in and the gate has now swung open and he walks in and it's overwhelming to him. He says, look, there's this, there's this, there's this, there's this. He's even repeating himself. Hina with nard. Oh, nard with saffron. A transition is now taking place. Shulamith is going from being a locked garden to an orchard, an enclosed park. Made for only one, and that is Solomon. And the picture here is a heavenly picture. That whereas before she's pictured as locked up and inaccessible, Solomon beholds more wonders than he thought possible. And staying with the garden metaphor, the orchard, it's like coming to an orchard where every fruit tree and every spice plant is all in one place. There's only one place on earth where that's ever been the case, and that is the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden, in Solomon's mind, has just been opened to him. And this is exactly God's original design. In fact, the very last words in the Bible before the entrance of sin into the world is on this exact topic. Speaking of Adam and Eve in the Garden, which was in the country of Eden, Genesis 2.25, the last words in the Bible before sin comes, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That's the picture. And now the picture changes completely. The locks have come off totally. 
Verse 15 Different than verse 12, now she is a garden fountain, a well of living water and flowing streams from Lebanon. Now the locked garden, the locked spring, the sealed fountain are about to be transformed into an open gate where he can go to the garden fountain. She becomes a well of living water. She becomes streams from Lebanon. The gate is unlocked. The lock is thrown away, never to be used again. And we would not be at this point out of order to see this metaphor of the flowing streams as a more direct reference to Shulamith's advanced state of readiness and arousal to love. In other words, at this point in their interaction together, taking their time in anticipation, Solomon has now arrived finally to the most personal and intimate part of Shulamith. And so their anticipation reaches now a fever pitch. Now, so far in this honeymoon scene, Solomon has been the only speaker. He's been describing Shulamith in his shock and wonder at how beautiful his bride is. His words have been words of respect and awe and love and admiration. But now, finally, Shulamith speaks words that Solomon has been waiting to hear for what has probably felt like a hundred years. Verse 16 Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind. Blow upon my garden. Let its spices flow. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. Now, your Bible may label the very first part of verse 16 as still Solomon speaking, but there's much better evidence that Shulamith speaks right at the beginning of verse 16. Let me give you some of that evidence. The speaker is referring to Shulamith's body as my garden. Solomon has not yet fully consummated their marriage, so it's still her garden. And so Shulamith is the speaker. The picture of telling the winds to awaken and blow upon her garden, which is very clear to the reader by now, represents her body. This picture is Shulamith indicating she's fully engaged in the moment. She is now as eager as Solomon. There's a call to the winds to blow. And this picture is great winds whipping up waves in the streams and the fountains, which represent her body. And she issues the final invitation in the second half of verse 16. Again, she says, Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. Now there is possession. Now there is ownership. Now there's an invitation that everything she has is his. Her garden now belongs to him. It is his garden. That is the invitation. So first there's anticipation, then there's invitation in verse 16. Now remember, it's taken four full chapters of the poem to reach this point. Love has been developing, wooing has been happening, difficult conversations have been happening. Tons of time has been spent together. Even in our preaching of this book, it's taken us 12 messages to get to this point. And so now we arrive at consummation. Consummation, the God-given goal and oneness of marriage. And Solomon speaks once again. Chapter 5, verse 1, the first half. I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. Now, I understand the intention of the English Standard Version, this translation, to translate this verse as past tense. I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered and so forth. That puts the actual act of consummating their marriage in the white space between the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5. 
And I suppose that may at some level fit with a hesitance to see God as describing sexuality at this level of detail. But why wouldn't he do this? Why wouldn't he give a description? Marital love is his invention from the emotional components to the physical components to the spiritual components. It's all of him. And so, yes, this verse in the English Standard Version is translated in the past tense. The New American Standard translates the verse with the English perfect present, I have come to my garden, which at some level suggests an action which was begun in the past and continuing in the present. But all these verbs are present perfect verb forms in Hebrew. They may be translated as past tense as something begun in the past and completed, but it's also completely legitimate and possible contextually to translate a perfect verb as an action that is continuing. And in fact, we can show that it should be translated as an action that's continuing. The second half of verse 5 contains present tense verbs. Eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. It doesn't say you have eaten and you have drunk and you have been drunk with love. They're present tense. Now, what's my point here? It's entirely reasonable and most likely, and in fact, I would say preferred, to translate verse 1 in the present tense. I am coming to my garden. I am gathering my myrrh. I am eating my honeycomb with honey. I am drinking my wine with my milk. God doesn't mask or hide the act of marital love. He describes it. And by now, there's no getting away from the double meanings that Solomon employs to describe their time together. He's using metaphors that have already been defined previously in the poem to refer to touching Shulamith's body. I am gathering my myrrh. To refer to passionate kissing. I am drinking my wine with my milk. To the most intimate joining of their bodies together. I am coming to my garden. Now, given the uses of these symbols in prior verses, Solomon is celebrating touching her body, kissing her, and finally consummating their marriage in total intimacy. And you notice the possession now in Hebrew, eight times he uses the possessive pronoun, my garden, my sister and bride, my myrrh, my spice, my honeycomb, my honey, my wine, my milk. But remember, what is this glorious description based on? What is the solid foundation? I showed you last time, and it's worth repeating, that the poetic center, the structural middle point of the poem is not the physical consummation of the marriage. That's the result. The middle of the entire poem, the poetic center, chapter 4, verse 7, Solomon's adoration of Shulamith as my love. That's the foundation. That's the center and so from this second half of the wedding night we can derive four more principles to understand and obey God's view of marital love I'm not going to do these in any particular order of importance and once again if you're taking advantage of this opportunity to communicate these truths with your spouse consider this your assignment so let's walk through these principles first we'll call the principle of preservation the principle of preservation Fresh in our memories here is the oneness and the mutual ownership we saw in chapter 5, verse 1. My garden, my sister and bride, my myrrh, my spice, my honeycomb, my honey, my wine, my milk. There is a reason that God describes the oneness of marriage as being one flesh. 
because this is part and parcel of the spiritual and emotional oneness of the marriage. It all goes together. The Apostle Paul was concerned about this preservation of the one flesh relationship and he appeals to the mutual ownership aspect to make his case. He says in 1 Corinthians 7, beginning in verse 3, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Notice he says, except perhaps. It's a judgment call. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now that's not to say that the sole reason to stay faithful in the intimate life of the marriage is a negative one to prevent temptation. But why is the temptation there? It's not just a physical temptation. How do we know this? Well, the evidence is very clear that while men have a much stronger drive toward intimacy, plenty of women have extramarital affairs as well. Because intimacy is not just about physical enjoyment. It's a primary means by which the oneness, the unity of the marriage is preserved. This means that you don't use intimacy as a bargaining tool or the denial of intimacy as a weapon or a vengeance. That's absolutely abhorrent to God. I do have to speak to this. I, I know that there are many life circumstances which may interfere with the physical relationship of the marriage. There's health issues, other unavoidable barriers, and we understand this. But if I could just step into a fatherly role for a moment and just give a little fatherly admonition in the spirit of the Apostle Paul doing so in 1 Corinthians 7, even if there are problems, even if there are barriers, don't give up. Do all you can do. Be as close as you can be. Share as much as you can share. Don't say this is the end. The marriage is preserved through this relationship. Let me put it to you this way. Since the Song of Solomon uses lots of metaphors about the outdoors, we'll go in that direction. You go to a tree nursery and you buy a beautiful young tree. And you plant it in your yard. And at first you give it plenty of water, plenty of fertilizer. But then you begin systematically depriving the beautiful tree of water. Less and less frequent waterings. And the fertilizer and the nutrients stop after a few months altogether. The waterings become less frequent and more sparse. And in fact, you begin to resent the time and the effort that it takes to water the tree in the first place. And predictably, the leaves on the tree begin to dry up and shrivel. The the tree stops growing and soon some of the branches begin to appear dead. And in disgust, you march back to the nursery where you bought the tree and you demand your money back on this defective tree that you're now mad at. See also marriage counseling. So what do you do? You water the beautiful tree that is your marriage. You give it the nutrients and the life that it needs. Let the leaves flourish. That's the principle of preservation. We could also derive from this text the principle of openness. We know this, first of all, that Solomon is speaking completely openly with Shulamith. He's speaking directly to her about their time together. There's, there's no coyness. There's no shyness here. And you might say, well, he's a man. That's why he's so open about this. Men are built to be open about sexual things. But Shulamith will get her turn in the last seven verses of chapter 5. The last seven verses of chapter 5 
maybe seven verses I am most hesitant to read in the entire Bible aloud. Because this is Shulamith describing her husband. And this is what ladies call turnabout is fair play. Because what's happening there in chapter 5, beginning in verse 10, she says, My beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among 10,000. His head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy, black as a raven. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. His cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. His lips are lilies, dripping liquid myrrh. His arms are rods of gold, set with jewels. His body is polished ivory, bedecked with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns, set on bases of gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet, and he is altogether desirable. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem." So both of them speak openly. I want you to know this secondly, that from all appearances in chapter, all of chapter 4 and chapter 5, verse 1, there's no shyness, there's no coyness, there's no bashfulness on the part of either one of them. There's no withholding, there's no partway measures here. Shulamith is literally allowing Solomon to sit and gaze at her long enough for him to describe every part of her body back to her. Many times in counseling, I've heard wives say, I don't like my husband to look at me. That is, of course, indicative of deeper relational issues which have driven them apart. But at times, the core issue can be a lack of openness, a withholding of self because of some perceived need to be shy or bashful, or worse, a wrong perception that marital love is somehow dirty or wrong. And this can definitely go both ways. Husbands are are called to allow their wives the fullest expression possible of the pleasures of their time together. And this is helped by openness and complete vulnerability and trust with one another. Most men I've spoken to on this subject of openness don't even like their wives to joke about pushing them away about resisting their advances. That feels to a man like a wife feels when a husband jokes about having to sit and listen to his wife talk. Instead, there's to be openness. There's, there's no place for shyness or irritation at the desire for oneness and total openness together. That's the one flesh union. They were naked and not ashamed. There's a third principle we could take from this. We'll call this the principle of invitation. The principle of invitation, we've already touched on this somewhat. We know that in verse 16, Shulamith's invitation, let my beloved come to his garden. We also noticed in verse 9 that she was communicating with her eyes to Solomon that she was open to his advances. I, I don't know what school women go to to communicate with their eyes, but you all know how to do it. You can communicate every emotion there is with your eyes only. I don't know how. But he notices there's no shyness, there's no false modesty, no conditions, no payment, no resistance. This is completely the opposite of the worldly notion of defending my rights and my boundaries and what I want, what I need. We recall once again the Apostle Paul's admonition to married couples concerning invitation. For the wife does not have authority over her own body. But the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. 
But I'd like to return for a moment to the first part of verse 16 because this is much more than just poetic language of invitation. The first part of verse 16 of chapter 4, Shulamith says, Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind. Blow upon my garden, let its spices flow. What is Shulamith doing here? Well, essentially, she's talking to herself. She's speaking to herself. She's preparing her mind, she's preparing her heart, and she's preparing her body. Our culture tends to give the message that romance is something that men do, that the wife passively waits for her husband to make all the magic happen, so to speak. But this tells a very different story. This is a story of mental and emotional and spiritual preparation and groundwork. Shulamith is fully prepared in her heart, in her mind, to be completely available and to be completely in the moment. And if I might add this, the poem doesn't seem to allow space for this that in the context of all of Scripture, I think it would be fully okay for us to say this would probably be a moment of prayer for her. It would be a moment for her to go to her God asking to be prepared. And yes, absolutely, a husband should certainly woo and be kind and considerate, which is very romantic to his wife, but the other side of that coin is that both wife and husband are giving thought to their intimate life together. And why is she able to so warmly and openly invite Solomon to the delights of their time together? Because she's been nurturing and fostering these thoughts in advance. Now that sounds wonderful in the glorious, almost fantasy-like pages of Song of Solomon, doesn't it? But then life hits and that admonition to foster and nurture those thoughts of love in advance becomes a little more challenging through electric bills and clogged toilets and screaming children and pay cuts, and you can just kind of insert your own life in here and you have all the things that would come against God's plan for marriage. And that brings us very naturally to one last principle. The last one we'll look at we'll call the principle of priority. The principle of priority. Everything in the world is railing against what Song of Solomon would bring to your marriage. There's a very simple maxim that is universally true. Everyone does what is most important to them. Everyone does what is most important to them. If it wasn't the most important to you, you'd be doing something else. Now you might say, well, there are plenty of things I can't do because they're, they're important to me, but I just can't do them. Maybe, maybe not. But I can give you an example from Scripture that shows everyone does what's most important to them. For example, in the book of Proverbs, chapter 6, beginning in verse 10, Solomon gives us this proverb, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. That's the person that says, well, the most important thing to me is to be uh, financially responsible and secure. No, it's not. Most important thing to that person is to sleep in. People do what's most important to them. We schedule our priorities. We make room for our true priorities. We think about, we plan our true priorities. Here are two frequent excuses I've heard for not planning time with your spouse. They're very similar, but I've heard these enough that I'm going to differentiate them. The first excuse I've heard is, I'd prefer to be spontaneous. And that sounds wonderful. It sounds romantic. You, you, you picture violins in the background and suddenly rose petals coming down from the sky and, and magical things happening. Babysitters showing up magically and taking your children away. 
Let me ask you this. Has anything truly successful in your life ever happened spontaneously? Did you spontaneously receive a college degree? Did you spontaneously get a job that pays well? Did you spontaneously have a clean house? Did you spontaneously buy or build a home? I think it really is code language for being passive and hoping that everything that needs to line up will line up. When in fact, planning and prioritizing now puts this important need in your marriage at the forefront. And so, I'd prefer to be spontaneous. Sounds romantic, but it's not real. It's the second frequent excuse I've heard. Similar, but it is, I can't plan to be romantic. It just has to happen naturally. I can't plan to be romantic. It just has to happen naturally. Could I say this? The entire book of the Song of Solomon denies that lie. The whole book is a book of planning and build-up and working toward this moment of joy in chapter 5. It took four chapters, 12 sermons, 12 hours of listening to this to get to this point. Think of it this way. Would we ever read Proverbs 15.1 that says a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger, and then say, well... My right use of calm words just has to happen naturally. That when somebody says something rude to me, my response just has to be natural. Yeah, it'll be natural. It'll be naturally sinful. No. Obedience to Proverbs 15.1 happens because you're absorbing that truth. You have made a predetermination to live by that truth. Now, in our time-crunched culture, One of the reasons that we may resort to these two excuses is simply the fact that it becomes a challenge to devote the time necessary to romantic, being romantic and loving and to emotionally building up the other to our most intimate times together. And so we make excuses, maybe in some cases hoping that the other spouse will do all the work necessary to create the star alignment and all the 27 variables necessary to create a magical 10 minutes together that just by some miracle will happen. So how does the principle of priority work itself out? Let me give you five ways. How the principle of priority works itself out. And you might be surprised at the first few. First way, cultivate the habit of kindness and softness with each other. Cultivate the habit of kindness and softness with each other. Men, we can be grumpy husbands, can't we? You have a rough day or something's going on in your brain that you don't quite understand and you haven't been able to verbalize it yet and it just comes out in grumpiness. That doesn't help. A grumpy husband or a critical wife, that doesn't make for closeness, for openness. But those things are going to happen so you have to have the second way that this works itself out. Forgive quickly and biblically. Forgive quickly and biblically. What's the biblical way of forgiveness? Love covers a multitude of sins. In a sinful marriage, and yours is one of them, this forms the basis for fellowship and for unity. Forgiving quickly and biblically, not thinking about all the lists of things that are wrong with your spouse, but think about all the lists of the reasons that you're thankful for that person. There's a third way the principle of priority works itself out. We're doing it right now. Read Song of Solomon. 
If a problem in your life is your tongue, I would assign you to read some of the Proverbs about the tongue. If the problem in your life is the fact that you're a lousy employee, I would encourage you to read some of the parts of Scripture, Ephesians 6, Colossians 3, and so forth, that tell you to be a better employee. If you want to have your marriage be a priority, then you go to the parts of Scripture that tell you to do this. It is the Word of God meant to wash you in the truth. The beauty of Song of Solomon is you can read it once and get the glory of the message and you can read it a thousand times and never plumb the depths of how beautiful it is. This will help align your hearts together. Here's an idea. Read Song of Solomon together. If you sense a lack of closeness in your marriage, make a determination that a couple of times a week you're going to read a few chapters together and let the Lord through His Word do His work. Let me give you a fourth way that the principle of priority works itself out. We'll spend a little bit more time on the last two. The fourth way is exercise trust in the Lord. Exercise trust in the Lord. Now, what do I mean by this? You're exercising trust in the Lord that He blesses right priorities. You're exercising trust in the Lord that He blesses right priorities. For most couples I get to speak to, we tend to have our to-do lists Our calendars reflect everything else. And then if by some miracle there's suddenly a spontaneous moment, then maybe we can make one another a priority as the very last thought of the day. But what this really comes down to is a fear of not getting everything else done, everything else which is ultimately less important. And therefore we sacrifice our love lives on the altar of accomplishment and achievement. And you say... Well, tomorrow will be better, even though I'm not going to work at it. Well, next week will be better, even though I'm not going to work at it. Well, next month will be better, even though I'm not going to work at it. Next year will be better, even though I'm not going to work at it. Next decade will be better. And bam, 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 30 years go by and nothing changed. This is the same concept as giving financially to the church. We give the best. We give the first of what we have to the Lord's work and we trust that he blesses the rest. None of you here are the type that, as they used to say, makes change in the offering plate. You don't put a five in there and look for four ones to get back out because you're so desperate for money. You trust the Lord as you give. And it's the same with your time with your spouse. You trust the Lord that those other sort of important things on your to-do list will get done. And if they don't, can I say this? Who cares? Who cares? Do you think... However you keep your calendar, your to-do list, do you think that one year from now you will remember everything that is on your list for tomorrow morning? You won't remember anything that's on your list. Do you think you'll remember not being close with your spouse? Yes, that will burn itself into your heart. One more way that the principle of priority works itself out. Communicate openly about wants and needs. Communicate openly about wants and needs. And I don't use the phrase wants and needs in a sinful, selfish manner, just in a manner of communicating who you are. You're to be a source of delight to one another. Let me ask you a question. How would you like to go to a restaurant where you arrive and the waiter just comes and slaps some food down on the table that you didn't order? And he just says, here's the pickled squid milkshake. Eat it or leave. Let's stay with that restaurant metaphor for a moment. For men, we could say this. Your wife would like to go to a nice restaurant once in a while to be treated as special and unique. 
Make certain there's time and opportunity to have your wife know you love her with the time and the effort that you take in your intimate moments together. It takes effort, takes time, takes planning. We can again stay with the restaurant metaphor for the ladies. Ladies, your restaurant is the only one your husband wants to go to and the only one he may go to. But if the closed sign is up most of the time, that becomes a great difficulty for your husband because you're the one he loves. You're the one he cherishes. You're the one that he's hungry for. And so if the closed sign is up, then this begins to be a great cause for temptation and difficulties. Paul mentioned in 1 Corinthians 7 that the way out of temptation is regular time together as husband and wife. So you make your precious time together something you prioritize, something you both pursue. Don't let one of you feel like the other is disinterested. This priority should be reflected in your conversation, should be reflected in your calendar, should be reflected in your plans. This means both of you making sure there's time and And at times, no clocks. Throw the clocks out the window. Put your phones under a couch cushion in your neighbor's house. And again, with the restaurant metaphor, we understand that life doesn't allow us the luxury of every interaction being at the level of intensity and time and effort and slowness that's going to, for example, an upscale French restaurant would be. But you should go to the upscale French restaurant once in a while on a regular basis. Let me switch metaphors. Every couple needs time to talk together. A lot of time you pass functional information or have a quick conversation, even, even a text or, or a three-minute phone conversation, and that will do for a while. But on a regular basis, you also need those, those wonderful, amazing times over a cup of tea or on a drive or on a walk together where you ignore the time and you just talk and talk, and you interact to your heart's content, and you look at your watch, and you say, we just talked for three and a half hours, and it went by like that. The very same principle goes for your intimate life together. This is literally the person that you vowed to spend every day of your life with. The one with whom you made your children. The one who shares your dreams, your thoughts. If I could put it this way, the one who knows you better than you know yourself. And so you cherish each other. You use your calendar. You use your to-do list. You use your obedience to the Lord. And if I could put it this way, you should terrify every other part of your life into never getting in your way. Terrify your calendar to ever defy you. Terrify your to-do list to ever go against your, your wish for your marriage. Well, over the past two Sunday nights, we've looked at the principle of holiness, the principle of uplifting, the principle of giving, the principle of safeguarding. Tonight, we've looked at the principle of preservation, the principle of openness, the principle of invitation, the principle of priority. I'd like to do one more thing, if you'd permit me tonight. I want to return briefly to the second half of verse 1, chapter 5, verse 1. This is the chorus the daughters of Jerusalem, apparently somewhere outside the wedding chamber, since the wedding celebration would continue after consummation. They're giving a blessing to the bride and the groom to enjoy this precious gift together. And we know that Solomon is the human author of the poem Song of Solomon, but who's the primary author of Scripture? Second Peter one twenty one. 
For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Bible was written by God. And it is God who says to the married couple, and he speaks to them, in our culture, the second half of verse 1 of chapter 5 would be called a wedding toast. God's wish for the married couple. These are the words of God. Second half of verse 1, chapter 5. Eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. Those are the words of God. If you've trusted Christ as your Savior and received the free gift of forgiveness of your sin and certain eternal life, then you know and we see that Scripture clearly teaches the Lordship of Christ over the believer. Jesus gives commands and clearly says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. When we understand this, we believe this, we get this. There's no such thing as a true believer, a regenerate new creation in Christ who utterly disregards the law of Christ and the whole of Scripture without repentance or remorse. That class of person doesn't exist. And so as those who believe the Lordship of Christ and the authority of the Word of God, wouldn't it be odd to us to say this? For example, I love the Lord, but I simply refuse to forgive someone who has repented to me because my sensibilities are higher than God's. We wouldn't say that. Or wouldn't it be odd to say, I love the Lord, but I simply refuse to gather with God's people because the church is filled with hypocrites because my sensibilities are higher than God's. Or wouldn't it be odd to say, I love the Lord, but I simply refuse to be an honest employee. I work for a liberal company that supports sinful ideologies, so they deserve for me to steal from them because my sensibilities are higher than God's. We would reject that sort of thinking, wouldn't we? Well, could I tenderly suggest that that is actually precisely what happens at times when we take a supposedly higher road than the very words of God? To disavow or to avoid or reject altogether the words of God concerning marriage and marital love is the same as placing yourself in the position of being more holy and more righteous than God himself. The Pharisees degraded into this sort of thinking that in their original right desire in the history of the Pharisees, their original right desire to avoid sin, they began building traditions. And these traditions were to act as a hedge, as it were, around the law so that the person couldn't even come close to breaking the law of God. For example, just to make sure that they were fully tithing, giving 10%, if they grew spices in their background backyard gardens, they would cut one-tenth of that little backyard crop to give to the Lord to make sure they were fully tithing. But Jesus condemned this as actually being evidence of their self-righteousness and their arrogance. He said in Matthew 23, 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. The Pharisees would supposedly worship God by saying, O God Almighty, I present to you my mint leaves. Like God is supposed to be pleased with this. But they left the heart out. And they rejected the actual law of God in favor of a man-made tradition. When we embrace a rejection of God's will for marriage in the name of modesty or shyness or supposed holiness, 
we're not living out the gospel truth that believers in Christ follow the word of God. And God has given three commands. Eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. That's the command to married couples. And in doing so, you fulfill God's design, you fulfill His will, and you're pleasing to the Lord. I hope that those principles that we've given over the past two weeks, I hope they'll be useful to you. I hope that you'll apply them and that you will see your marriage more accurately reflecting the standard of Song of Solomon. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come now. All of this is for the Lord's sake. It is for for your sake. We want to accurately reflect your word. We want to be those whose lives live out your word. And this is such a very, very personal topic. Lord, you have literally brought the word of God into our very bedrooms. You've brought the word of God into the most private, intimate moments of our lives, but they're moments that you invented, that you created. And so, Lord, as in every area of our sanctification, how pleasing it is to you when we are careful with our words, how pleasing it is to you when we are careful to obey you in the church, how pleasing it is to you when we are careful to obey you as parents, as children, as employers, as employees, and how pleasing it is to you when we obey you as husbands and wives. Lord, I pray for our church. Every church has its share of couples that are struggling, that are hurting, that are undergoing at times secret pain and anguish. Oh Lord, let these messages be a salve of healing and of joy and of closeness, even in the most difficult situations. Lord, let them seek after Christ and find the joy of the one flesh union that you created. Lord, let there be spiritual joy and physical joy and emotional joy. And in every marriage represented in this church in which there are outside factors and difficulties that come against the marriage, Lord, let them handle those with grace, with love for one another, with kindness, with patience. And I pray, Lord, that in the months and years to come, I know this is asking a lot, but I would pray that Grace Bible Church would become known as the church where marriages thrive. Let us set the example, Lord, in order to then in turn be a help to others as well. Let your word do its work, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.